Join me, Dr. Cathy Weston, for my podcast series, Get a Grip, brought to you by Tooldop Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. In each podcast, I help unpick some of the trickier questions relating to how we raise children today. How do we talk to children about mental health? How can we make sure our children engage safely with the digital world? Whose responsibility is the mental health education of our children, teachers or parents? These podcasts get me talking and you thinking. I've reached out to today's thought leaders and main researchers in this area and asked them their views on the areas where we need to get a grip. Jardeth O'Brien has been a teacher for nearly two decades, working in a variety of schools, including schools for children with social, emotional and behavioural issues and severe, profound and multiple learning difficulties. For the last nine years, he's been head teacher at Carwarden House Community School in Surrey, a special school for students aged 11 to 18 with complex learning needs. He's a behaviour columnist for the Times Educational Supplement, has written for The Guardian and several other education publications. He trains teachers on behaviour, school leadership and SEN. He's the author of three books, Don't Send Him In Tomorrow, Shining a Light on the Marginalised, Disenfranchised and Forgotten Children of Today's Schools, published in 2016, and Better Behaviour, a Guide for Teachers, published in 2018, and his most recent work, Leading Better Behaviour, a Guide for School Leaders. Welcome, Jarleth. How are you? I'm good, Cathy. Thanks very much for having me on the show. Uh, presumably you're on your summer holidays now, is that correct? Yeah, it's day two. So um, yeah, I've got a, a slot booked at the tip for later today. So that's about the, <laughs> the second most exciting thing that's happening today after this. So you're you're getting rid of all that paperwork, are you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I am. And what has lockdown been like for you? Um, you know, uh, I understand. Is this correct? You're still, you're, in addition to all your writing, that you lead a school as well? Yeah, I spent uh, part of my week as an associate head in a special school and and part of it in um, a mainstream secondary school. So it's been interesting spending each week in two schools that are really different. Actually, the the special school is much smaller, uh, but has had a far larger proportion of children in every day, understandably. And the secondary school has been largely empty, most children working from home online uh, or some version of remote learning. Um, and so they've been very different in that sense. Yeah. So the special school has felt much closer to what school was like before lockdown, actually. You know, many of the children have got significant learning difficulties and physical difficulties, which means the the, uh, the demands of social distancing are challenging, to say the least. Um, and all the things around, you know, intimate care needs and, and medication that, that we provide, we simply can't not do those things. So there's been a lot more normality, if you like, in the special school compared to, to how the mainstream school has been working. Now, Jarlath, I don't know if you'd agree with me, but in my experience, so many, most of the population just do not understand what goes on in a special educate, you know, a special school. And I was hoping you could just, just tell us what a sort of a typical day is like for students and teachers. Yeah, well, most people don't know because understandably they've never visited one. But I actually don't really like the phrase special school very much. It kind of implies that there is a you know, material difference between what goes on in a special school compared to a mainstream school. And, and I say I don't like it, but I've been using the phrase in the first couple of minutes of this interview already. I remember vividly showing a parent around uh, a school I was head of a few years ago, and they said, 
we were just wandering around the school, like, checking out the classrooms, and they said, um, said, you know what, I'm not being funny, but this is just like a normal school. <laughs> and I said, it is a normal school. And she went, oh, you know what I mean? I said, I do know what you mean, but, you know, there's nothing that's happening here that isn't different to a, a mainstream school down the road. We're educating children. Our aims are pretty much the same. We're trying to do the same thing. We're pretty much organised the same way. We have teachers and support staff and classes and a timetable and a curriculum and assessment, all the things that you expect in a school. So actually, the vast majority of what happens in a special school is what happens in any school. <laughs> I think there is a difference, though, I would say, um, clearly, that, that that's why they exist. And my my the, the key difference, I think, is special schools tend to have an approach, which is a child turns up with a particular set of needs and the school decides how the school has to be different to meet those child's needs. And I'm, I'm massively generalising here, but... I don't see that level of flexibility and nimbleness in the mainstream sector as a whole. I'm sure there are mainstream schools that are like that. But more broadly, I think their approach is this is how our school works organisationally and children broadly have to fit into that. And that's where I think, or I know, you know, there are problems then down the line where children are struggling to fit into the, the organisational structures of a school um, and at some point then can't be there anymore. So, you know, when I was first a head teacher of a special school, I kind of joked that we had half of our children really should have been in a mainstream school and they'd all been in a mainstream primary school. All of them came to us for secondary education and a quarter of the school had been to a mainstream secondary but had to leave normally because of their behaviour. And I do honestly believe that they should um, have have done done well in a in a secondary school, but the, the organisational demands and the social demands meant that some of them couldn't stay any longer, um, and that was really why we existed. So I think the difference for me fundamentally is around the flexibility of the approach, the idea that we, the adults, the highly trained professionals, have to work out how to meet this particular child's set of needs in our school, as opposed to big big schools organising themselves and then children largely having to fit into how they work. It is absolutely about resource, isn't it? I mean, in my experience, I speak to so many parents of children who just don't fit into, as you say, what's going on in the mainstream. They get continually reprimanded, you know, for for behaviour that in many cases cannot be easily helped. And the parents are reluctant in many cases to send them to a special school, if you like, because they, they, they yeah. assume it's stigmatising versus the needs of the child that have to be met. So there seems to be a deficit in the system. There doesn't seem to be a kind of a middle ground school, if that makes sense. Yeah, it, it's. I think it gets to the heart of the culture of performativity that I describe it, that, that we have in the English system in particular. Some of the children I worked with who were in mainstream secondaries then came to us were they were undoubtedly seen as a risk to the performance of the school, which sounds perverse when I describe it like that. But you know, those schools are like special schools subject to the Ofsted framework. And they felt that, you know, they were their their progress measures, let's say, may have been at risk, or that they couldn't accommodate those child's needs well enough, you know, despite doing everything they possibly could within the the, the strictures they felt they were operating under in terms of performativity and accountability. But, you know, I always remind people that special schools are subject to the same Ofsted framework as everybody else. But you are right. Parents, on the whole, did feel a level of concern when they would look around our school to think this feels like a poor second class choice to a mainstream school. And I fully understood their point of view, which was, you know, 
I, I really want what everybody else is getting without having to really fight for it. And this feels like maybe a poor choice compared to a secondary school. So we had to work hard to convince them that actually we have high academic standards and it's difficult to persuade people that's the case when you're a school full of people with learning difficulties because it looks like the level of progress they make is slower compared to their peers. Well, that that can be true, but they can also do extremely well given their you know their, their their difficulty so that was always a challenge which is fine you know we had a GCSE curriculum and everything else and a work-related learning program and we wanted to show parents that we were ambitious for those children to move into further education employment independent living further on but it it meant that we really had to from day one understand the level of concern from those parents they you know when a child is born on day one you know we all kind of daydream a little bit about what they may go on to do and for some of them they felt that that was at risk if we didn't get it right at school and that's a that's a legitimate concern to have so it really meant us having to put ourselves in the position of where the parents were understand those concerns and make sure we listen to them and show them that actually we are ambitious we're not just a you know a, a glorified care facility we are a school we have academic standards and ambitions for these children and this is how we go about doing it so i'll give you one example that, that really hit home to me about this we i was really proud of our work related learning and work experience program and a colleague of mine was saying to me in his school they had options where they either went to college for a transition program or they did work experience and i said well surely the answer is that they should do both it's a bit like saying would you like to do english or maths you know it's it's not an either or situation both of these are critical to these children becoming successful adults and i had no right then to say to parents you know we're ambitious for your child if we couldn't then prove that by by how our curriculum looked and you know I always felt that was a, a fairly good reassurance to parents that this guy says they're ambitious for, for my child um, but then they could see it in, in reality. And I mean the, 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 the sort of experience of other parents is that and this was certainly the case in my own family because my sister had um, mild learning difficulties that they decided to send her to a mainstream school um, mm-hmm. to sort of avoid the stigma, if you like, um, and they felt it wasn't appropriate for her to go to a, a special school. And then, of course, that child's needs do not get met. And there's a, you know, a, a, one of the worst uh, images of my childhood is watching her walk into that school every day. You mm. know, I was walking into the grammar school next door and she was walking through this corridor of bullies. And it's worse, isn't it, for a child's needs not to be met. You know, it's often not the right decision for children to stay in mainstream. So I think there's a lot of destigmatizing and reassuring that needs to happen. As you say, it sounds fantastic in those places where you've worked that you are aspirational and convey that. And it's just a sort of a there's a populist view and there's the truth, isn't there? The reality of these brilliant places. Yeah. and, and but. If I was sitting there in school expecting people to come and visit and knock on the door and be curious, you know, I'm going to be waiting. No one's going to turn up. It, you know, we are duty bound as schools to take our, to become as visible as we can. And that's why, you know, we had a partnership with, for example, with Wellington College, which is a you know well-known international, uh, internationally known independent school, not far from us. They were very conscious that, that some of their students had a relatively privileged uh, upbringing and they were very keen to you know round the edges of that um, which is the right thing to do and we also wanted to partner with a school that was you know radically different from ours on the surface although like I said earlier essentially trying to do the same thing. 
and we did some great work together. But it's only by going out there and and taking the school to other people um, that you you managed to do that. So that was why our work experience program I felt was so important because it looked like it was set up to you know to be developmental for our for our children, and it was. But actually, I think the greatest power of it was actually to show employers that whatever it is that you think people with learning difficulties can do you know these kids are here to show you that you've massively underestimated them and it's only by doing that that you can show this is what these these people are capable of they do add value to your business you know they are people you should be employing it's not just a a, an altruistic or a charitable thing to give them some work experience because you want to feel good because you've got a corporate responsibility agenda these are people who will graft and work do well be successful um, and the only way that we are going to we're going to do that is by getting our students into their workplace to show them. Um, I'll give you a, a, an example. Actually, I was this was not when I was a head; it was when I was a deputy. And we got a call one day from um, from ASDA, and one of our students was doing work experience there. Uh, and I, I said I was given a, a message to say you've got to call somebody at, at duty manager at ASDA because this student had bit a member of staff, bitten a member of staff. And I thought, oh my god, this is terrible. So I rang up, and I was you know in full on apologetic mode. Because I thought, oh, you know, this might risk our placement with ASDA. And the, the duty manager said, no, you misunderstand me. I'm really sorry. I'm ringing to apologise. You know, we know this student really well, but actually we put them in a position that they really struggled with and we shouldn't have done that. And they became overwhelmed. So I'm ringing to apologise. And it made me realise, you know, ah, actually, you know, I love you guys, ASDA. That's great. It's not a great situation, but you recognise, you know, the needs that that student had and you recognise that, this is how you're supposed to support them. And in that situation, you didn't quite manage it. And this is what happened as a result. So although it was a, an unpleasant situation, it actually did highlight to me the power of those kind of placements, because without that, you know, and I know that student, I'm not going to describe her needs here, but, you know, many employers would shy away from employing her um, because they would be worried about how it would look terrible as that sounds, but that's the truth for them. I mean, that's absolutely fantastic, you know. Yeah, I was full of admiration for them because I thought actually that shows me your level of understanding for this person, your commitment to trying to help them and an acknowledgement from you that you were in the wrong there in that situation. That's what happened as a result. So yeah, that, that struck home to me, the importance of us taking our school and our students into the workplace, into society to, to shatter those kind of the stigma around whatever it is to have learning difficulties or whatever, and to, to make people believe uh, and convince them that these these people are capable of more than you think in fact far more they might need a bit of support to start with but actually you know we are duty bound to give them that and then you know but not only because it's the right thing to do in terms of their independence but also if you want to think about it this way the cost to society later on in terms of independent living or healthcare or all the outcomes that we know that are dire for for people learning difficulties they are terrible That's right. I mean, why it is absolutely devastating to read, you know, that the outcome statistics are so dire for children with special educational needs. I mean, it sounds like we've come quite a long way as a society, but why are they still so poor? You're not going to find anyone that doesn't say that says they don't care about it. No, it's it's uh, no one's going to say that. No politician is going to say we don't really we don't really care. And they do. It's another thing to commit then to doing something about making the system support them such that those outcomes get better. Now, I think our problem as a society generally is that we privilege, we'll protect the outcomes of our highest attainers uh, most. So, you know, hence every so often we have a debate about whether there should be more grammar schools, because there's an inbuilt belief in our society that 
that we are somehow disadvantaging the most highest attaining. I'm really trying to avoid saying most able here because I don't believe that. Our highest attaining children, our most privileged children by educating them with everybody else. I reject that, but that seems to me a bigger priority than saying, okay, in order for this group of children to do well, and I, you know, we can put children with special needs into a group called disadvantaged if you want. That's a big group. You know, if we were to say we're going to prioritise the outcomes for this group, that means that potentially everybody else might do a tiny little bit less. That would that seems to me a debate worth having. But I don't think as a society we're in a position to be prepared to do that yet because it would imply that for those highest attainers they might have to do a tiny bit less uh, be, be less successful and they are you know that is an important important feature of our society so I, I i don't think we're there yet we, we make a lot of noises about supporting these people with learning difficulties and but the systemic change in order to prioritize their outcomes um, isn't there yet Jarlath, I know that you do so much work advising schools on on behaviour. I mean, you've written several books on on the topic of behaviour and behaviour leading, you know, good behaviour in schools, etc. So I'd like to move on to that, if that's okay. Sure. And one of the uh, quotations in one of your books is that the behaviour of children and school leaders' responses to it are some of the most emotive and controversial topics in the teaching profession. <laughs> there are, it, it seems to be, particularly on Twitter, teachers never stop talking about behaviour and, and they have quite diverse views about how to yeah. manage it. And wh- why do you think it is such a difficult topic? It's no surprise to me that it's the most emotive one because it's it's really immediate. You know, it can be something that can derail a lesson you've spent ages preparing for a long time, or you feel that the behaviour of one child is somehow disadvantaging a group of other children who are there to who are really keen to to learn. So I can see there's an immediacy around it, and it is a stressful situation. So it's no surprise to me. I'm really pleased that we talk about it a lot. We know we should. We should talk about it. And there's, what, 400 odd thousand teachers in this country. So the fact that we have a range of views, again, isn't really surprising to me. Uh, I think part of that comes from somewhere else in the book. I talk about is it Dan Lorty's apprenticeship of observation. You know, we, we've all been to school and so have journalists, right? So everyone thinks that they know what teachers are like and what they do. But what we don't talk about enough is, I think, how that experience as children at school has influenced how we take uh, approaches in the classroom as teachers and of course it depends on your context as well and there's a lot of certainly when I was first a teacher 20 years ago I was quite the uh, it was a lot of monkey see monkey do with me really it was kind of seeing how people were handling classes and trying that out for myself and trying to make it fit in with my own personality but for sure the school I worked in and it was a you know a good comprehensive there were a group of teachers who had a, a reputation for being really good with behavior but they tended to be our most, in some cases, scary teachers. But, you know, they had a, a presence and they were, they had a reputation for taking no nonsense from anyone. There's quite a old fashioned approach, I think, if you like. And I never really thought about behavior in any depth. It was just a, a thing in front of me to manage. And because I'm, you know, I'm six foot and I'm, if I, I've got a big voice, if I wanted to use it, relatively successful in, in keeping most children behaving well. And you really started to think about it in any more depth with classes that I found difficult. And then certainly when I went to work in a school for children with emotional and behavioural difficulties, you know, you were forced to think about it in a lot more depth because it was in front of you all the time. Uh, and so my my thinking has really changed 
quite a lot over the past 20 years. But that's also because I've worked in a fair number of different kinds of schools. And I think that breadth has been really helpful to me in thinking about the the commonalities between those schools and, and what the principles around which I, I approach behaviour. But also when I was a special constable, you know, working as a teacher during the week and then as a volunteer police officer at the weekends, that, that undoubtedly made me a better teacher, <laughs> believe it or not, working as a, as, a, as a police officer. And I can completely understand that because I've been, I've worked in prisons and as a probation officer and people laugh, but I'm sincere when I say it. It was a role that has helped me parent boys because <laughs> you, know, you, you everything that you talk about in this book that I've got in front of me, Leading Better Behaviour, the 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 um echoes in the probation literature in the work that I used to do on rehabilitation, you know the emphasis that you put on positive relationships comes through so powerfully, and it's just mm. it was just it was poignant in places to it's hard to convey to people the importance of that bedrock relationship with children or young people that you're trying to help. Um, you know, uh, it just comes through so strongly. I think the one thing we don't do as a profession is we aren't professionally curious enough about causes for behaviour. So we are, you know, we are keen to solve behaviour issues, but our approach tends to be quite behaviourist in its response, which is kid does something, you know, we sanction as a result. If the behaviour doesn't get better, we increase the sanctions until, you know, maybe that child isn't at our school anymore. And we place, you know, the deficit on the child and, you know, go back to what I said before about the special school approach, which is how does the school need to be different to help this child? That, I suppose, really was the biggest shift in my mind for me. Um, You talked about, you know, the prison service, prison reform trust produce all sorts of information about the prevalence of language difficulties, literacy difficulties, all sorts of other issues that prisoners have got massively overrepresented in prison lots of which were undiagnosed at school. And that lack of professional curiosity around drivers for behaviour, for me, is a significant problem in mainstream schools. If we are screening children for issues uh, much earlier, having better relationships with things like speech and language therapists, for example, they taught me so much about being a better teacher. It's, you know, it'd be hard to summarise, but I never saw a speech and language therapist at all in a mainstream school. I wouldn't have recognised one if they were if they walked into my classroom. Yet I recognise the importance of speech and language therapists now in helping me work out how I can make my classroom more inclusive. I think back to how many GCSE textbooks I must have given to children or worksheets that were inaccessible to some of them, despite the fact that I had their reading ages in front of me. I wasn't doing my best for those children. I was putting them in a position where they were they weren't able to engage in the the material I wanted them to. I agree. I mean, if I was in my head, if I was a head teacher, I would be investing in speech and language therapists as well. Yeah. I think they're so undervalued in schools. And I think that, you know, when I worked in prisons, you've just reminded me of an incident where I was giving out a survey to about 20 prisoners in a room. And I said, if any of you are struggling to read it or write, you know, on it, just put your hand up. And every single hand went up because they were all illiterate. And it was when you meet adults who are illiterate, it's so shocking, isn't it? It's, you know, and and you just think, and then I worked in a university where where they were training teachers. And I, I realized, gosh, you know, even in teacher training, there isn't a lot of focus 
on some of these issues to do with speech and language or issues with literacy. And I don't think that situation has improved greatly. Am I wrong in terms of, you know, how are we actually at the, starting from the beginning with teacher training? I, I have some sympathy with teacher training because it's a relatively short period of time and they have an awful lot to cover. So there's a, there's a place for it to be covered, but we still have responsibility as schools to continue that with early career teachers and go back to what you were talking there about asking a group of people if they're struggling to read something. You know, I think people I've worked with who've had literacy difficulties and communication difficulties are past masters at hiding that. You know, it's a brave person who would respond to that kind of question to go, yep, I can't, you know, for some of them, the coping strategy is to do everything possible to avoid showing that you can't read that. Uh, And I've seen that time after time with children, not just with reading, but any kind of, you know, I've written a few times about failure avoidance, you know, the shame that comes with that. So it's uh, far better to protect myself, to to avoid the situation and to experience the certain failure that's going to come with doing what you want me to do. So if it means that I have to run out of your classroom, rip up my work, do anything possible to avoid it, then, you know, for some kids, they are going to do that. And any sanctions that, that you threaten them with are preferable because, it well, that's fine. I'll, I'll happily stay after school. It just means I don't have to do the work you wanted me to do. No problem. And of course, they that's lose right. any sting as a result. And that lovely point that you made that comes across in your work, you know, it's mind-bogglingly interesting where you say defiance about doing work could be due to a fear of failure you know so wanting to disrupt the class throwing the paper running out of the classroom I've met a child who ran out of the school recently when they were asked to do something and of course were disciplined for it when actually the child is so anxious that they you know so having a sense of the drivers as you say for behavior is a first step isn't it we do. And, and I, I'm going to forget who said this quote, but it's it's in the book somewhere. And they said, they said, you know, with no attempt, there can be no failure. With no failure, no humiliation. And I use that a lot because I always remind you know, adults as well that we as, you know, well-trained professional adults sometimes do that as well. I've often used the example of how many teachers have said, oh, I'm not going to go for that promotion because, you know, Steve's already got it wrapped up. You know, he, it's in the bag for him. There's no point in me putting myself through it just to, to 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 get knocked back. We do the same. We sometimes decide for ourselves that it, the risk of failure is too high. I'm not going to bother. And we, we, we don't recognise that we are engaging in the same kind of failure avoidance, humiliation avoidance, shame avoidance that children are doing. We just don't smash the place up and swear at the teacher. But at its heart, it's the same thing. We decide that, no, no, that's too painful. I'm not going to do it. And we have the choice as adults, you know, we can kind of avoid those situations. But if you're a child in a class and the only way to avoid showing everybody around you that you can't read is to essentially walk out, you, some of you will do that. And as well, they're subject to humiliate, you know, the public humiliation, peer pressure, you know, bullying for, for particular, you know, struggles that they might have. So it's an extremely intense and difficult environment for many children in that classroom. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, I like... Um, Ross Green's work a lot, the psychologist talks about, you know, children do well if they can, if they can't do well, because they lack the skills to do well. There's a lot in that. But of course, you know, I take it further to think doing well there means what the teacher wants you to do well. And of course, if you feel that's unattainable, then I can find my own ways of being successful. And we sometimes then get children who, who they feel disinvited by school. I think Carol Goodnow talks about school belonging calls it, you know, feel disinvited by school. And they'll find their tribe, their feeling of success, their feeling of belonging somewhere else. 
ideally we want them to feel like they belong in a school, they matter in a school, they're successful learners in a school. But if they feel that's beyond them, um, or the the path to that is too painful, you know, that they, they will find their belonging and their success somewhere else. And it may be things that we think are abhorrent, but they will. I mean, you literally cannot, if there's one thing that emerges from so many different fields of literature, it is the importance of that sense of belonging, isn't it? It just provides mm. a sort of a resilient string, you know, to the school, that sense of belonging to the school community, sense of belonging yeah. to family, to wider community, and that relationship between teacher and pupil. All of those things matter so much, don't they? They do. And, you know, schools actually are extremely good at that on the whole. I think they build really good communities. I'm looking back in the last couple of days. My daughter left primary school this week and she's my youngest. And now I don't have any children at primary school. That makes me old. (laughs) But but I can. So I'm I'm struggling with that. But uh, I went to pick her up from school on on Wednesday and the teachers and all the parents, we created like a guard of honour out out of the school onto the street. So we clapped them all out of school. They didn't know that was happening at all. And you can see, you know, my daughter, I feel quite emotional talking about it actually, because it's a school I absolutely love. It was great for my son and for my daughter. And you, you can see them walking out of school, both excited about the prospect of moving on in their life to secondary school, but also really poignant moment because this school that they've spent a lot of their life in, they're no longer members of. But, you know, officially, they'll always feel like they're part of it. But it's Schools are brilliant at that, generally creating that strong sense of belonging in lots of ways, you know, in house systems and sports and extracurricular stuff and all sorts of things that they do. But but it's undeniable. There are a group of young people who who feel, you know, I'll use Carol Goodnow's word again, you know, disinvited, if you like. Um, and I think that's partly because we we can sometimes have a very narrow definition of what it means to be successful in school. And that can often mean, you know, high attaining academic achievement. And there are children who may, may, may not get to those heights, yet who have significant strengths in many areas that sometimes go unacknowledged or, or, or aren't as celebrated as much. I don't want to be too harsh on schools here because I think they do a lot here. But with the group of kids we're talking about that sometimes are struggling in the system, I use the example sometimes of the behaviour sanction of if a child is struggling in school, Uh, isn't behaving well enough sometimes a school might say well you know you can't represent the school football team until you can behave well enough and I always challenge that because I think that might be the only aspect of school life where that child is feeling like they are successful or that they do well and we are giving them an all or nothing demand by saying right we we know this is important to you so we're going to use this as a uh, an incentive that's how the school see it to, to make you behave better yet I think that's an escalation you know I think we risk sometimes saying okay, it's simply a matter of choice for you. You just behave better and you can still play football for the school team. If you can't, then we're going to take that away from you. And I think that's a high risk strategy. I I don't really advise that one because I think that it puts the one thing that matters to some children at at greater risk. So I think far better to build on that success to try and get it into other areas than to say, unless the other aspects of school life that you find hard, we're going to take away the one thing that currently is most important to you. In all of your work, and again, it reminded me of, I don't know if you saw uh, the footballer Ian Wright meeting his old teacher. Did you ever see that clip where he is, you know, at Arsenal's whatever football stadium and yeah. his old teacher comes in? Mr. And Peterson, he yeah. crumbles, you know, like a little boy because yeah. it's his PE teacher. And yeah. that was, it really stuck in my mind because he said that his teacher was the only person who gave him responsibility 
and agency and expected him, I gave him an important role as the milk monitor in the school and yeah. how powerfully important it was for that child to have that. What I'm saying is that sort of sense of self and high self-esteem is also terribly important and valuing these children for, you know, getting them to see themselves in a very positive light, which also runs through your work. And do you think how many years have passed between, you know, Ian Wright leaving school and then meeting that guy again? And it's so powerful because there's a there's like a there's this tsunami of emotion that over overwhelms Ian Wright there and that you know brings home to you the the power of you as a teacher not just in the moment but for the rest of that child's life I earlier this year you know one of my my uh, teachers from secondary school died who I, I happened to be able to keep in contact with as an adult for, for a period of time and I was asked to read something at his funeral I found it really hard to do but I wanted to impress upon all the people who were there that you know Len, Len Clark, his name was, he hadn't taught me for 26 years, I think it was, when he died. Yet he influences me every day, without question. And those those uh, kind of immediate performance measures of schools, they measure something. But of course, the, 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 you know, the, the deep, emotive, important things that teachers do with, with students, that, that is essentially immeasurable, but also long lasting. And it may not actually come to, you know, come to light until many years later. No, no inspection framework is ever going to capture that, but it is critical to their sense of themselves as a successful adult, you know, and their feeling then of belonging, you know, back in school. But the fact that someone believed in them, I mean, I think teachers don't give themselves enough credit for the power. You know, often when I do teacher training, I say to them, you know, do you really know how powerful and important you are to these children, you know, and they, they give, 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 you know, they're very altruistic people, teachers, mm. aren't they? Yeah. But they, they are so critically important. I think that your lovely um, work highlights as well and, and aligns with my own in terms of, you know, really, you know, let's turn the volume up on the positive things that when you see great behavior you know catch it when you comment on it there's a lovely phrase that you use um about catching what is it we're not here to catch them out we're here to catch we're here them. to ca- catch them not catch them out yeah i right. love that you know and yeah. i think this this is absolutely aligned with with advice in parenting as well i think parents often don't uh, understand or have the knowledge to recognize that some very positive steps can and small things can go a very very long way in terms of improving behavior. So catching good behavior, recognizing it, praising children in an effective way, modeling. These are all things that have come out of your work and that have come out of the criminology literature as well. You know, sense of belonging, focusing on sense of self, self-esteem, self-worth, positive labeling. I think yeah. that as yeah. you've described, I mean, we have a big issue with language and the words that we use to describe parents that we work with in schools, teachers, students, you know, I think there's quite a way to go there in terms of, you know, people understanding how damaging negative labels can be um, for relationships. They can. And there's a standard phrase you'll hear in schools about hard to reach parents. And a friend of mine said, she said, when People say hard to reach. What they mean is easy to ignore. 
And I thought, ah, yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> yeah, she's absolutely spot on with that. Um, so I always use that now when, if anyone ever I hear the words hard to reach, I'll say, you know, when you say that, you really need to think easy to ignore because there are, it's not easy sometimes for parents to engage in school with schools. Schools sometimes don't make it very easy. People like, you know, her teachers are sometimes difficult to get hold of. We are, you know, schools, we are duty bound, I think, to do our best to to communicate well and often with parents on an equitable basis you know it's not a it's not a power game uh, and for parents it can feel like that you know one parent against a large school is a is a is a difficult thing to feel like you've got to take on if you want to make a complaint or a, a you know offer some advice about how best to support your child so i think you know schools would do well to recognize we are we do feel like intimidating powerful organizations sometimes to parents and that we shouldn't use language like hard to reach or if we do, then we we have to acknowledge that we're the ones who have to make the effort to make it less hard to reach them. <laughs> you know, it can't be just for the parents to continue to put in the work to get hold of us. We need to be as easy to get hold of as possible. But the other thing is, you know, teachers are adept and, you know, able to differentiate between pupils' needs. But often they forget that parents require that kind of differentiation as well. Some parents find it very, very hard, impossible to set foot in that physical building. And to come to parents' evening is an extremely stressful experience. So I, you know, yeah. I think there are a lot of assumptions made about those parents and um, that that really, you know, um, and also there are assumptions made about pushy parents, which is a term I loathe. And I really <laughs> admired and loved reading this quotation from you. Um, when I took up headship, I was warned about two parents who would make my life hell. Labeled as pushy, I braced myself for a battle when instead I find them engaging, intelligent and committed. They had to fight for their children's basic entitlement and had a reputation for being prepared to advocate strongly for their children. This is my kind of parent. School leaders are missing a golden opportunity to use this kind of emotional energy. Yeah, I, I'll never forget, actually, those two parents, because they, they went on to be vice chairs of our governing body. <laughs> Brilliant people. But they'd spent, you know, a long time having to fight for their child's basic entitlement. And that's how they felt they had to operate with schools. Now, we had to acknowledge that and then and help them feel like we're on your side. We're going to work together, you know, uh, uh, as a team. And, you know, once we were able to do that, it was, you know, they were great. I, Fantastic. You, schools need people like that. You really need people like that because they will put in hours and hours of support to help you. Um, and you know, I've got a lot of time for them. I could easily see that, though. How, I could have got that wrong had I approached them in a you know kind of defensive way or or avoided communicating with them. I could imagine they would have found me you know a difficult person to deal with. But they were they were great, and I, I'll forever be in debt to them for what they taught me about how to be better at communicating with parents. But the other thing that strikes me from that quotation, and it's definitely my experience as well, is that it takes great confidence, you know, to be the kind of leader who actually wants to include parents in a dialogue about managing behavior or anything like that. It takes courage. And I think that it is great. It, it brings us back to the conversation about what makes a great school leader. And I, you know, I think, would you sort of agree that sometimes some school leaders will literally say no parents passed this point? And I, I think it's an absolute missed opportunity, as you do. But it's quite common. And actually, in my view, effective leadership is about being that person who says, I don't know everything. You know a lot as well. And, and parent partnership, instead of being tokenistic, 
comes from your work so much is steeped in the values and the vision that the school has for that parent partnership. So sometimes it seems very tokenistic and schools have quite a long way to go to really, you know, really meaningfully create a parent partnership that works for children. I, I think that the, the quality of humility in leaders is massively underrated. You know, for, for me, I am I'm very wary of the brash, you know, confident, sharp suited school leader or in any organization leader of any organization that's a you know there is that's ultra confident I, w- I worry about that kind of approach I'm much more warm to leaders who are humble and approachable and who recognize also that they are the custodians of a, an organization for a period of time they, they the organization doesn't belong to them it's not theirs they don't own it and I worry when that attitude can creep in that when you start to feel like this is my school I never liked using the phrase my school I would always correct myself and say, you know, it's our school. Or I feel like, you know, I'm the head teacher here for a, for a period of time. It's not forever. So I'm a custodian of this organisation and, you know, I'm here to uphold its values and drive them, yes, and make difficult decisions and all the rest of it. But it doesn't belong to me. The moment you, you start to feel like this organisation belongs to you and a leader of any organisation, I think, then I think you're in trouble there because everything starts to become personal. You know, a criticism of the organisation becomes a criticism of you personally. And I think that's when... Humility goes out the window, really, and arrogance kind of slips in. And or, and in some cases, I think this is the case where a level of arrogance or overconfidence is actually masking an insecurity underneath it. And I much rather be in being authentic is extremely important to me. You know, if I don't know something, I really, really don't want to blag it. I'd rather just say I don't know it. And being being a humble person, you can't fake that you are the you are the or you're not. And so I'm much more attracted to those kind of leaders who are humble in their approach. And who are prepared to say when, you know what, really don't know what to do here. I'm going to find out, actually, you know, and you can help me do that. And then we're going to solve this together um, rather than putting up a front where to say anything like that would appear to be weak. Uh, I think you're on, you're on thin ice there and you, you essentially have to keep covering your tracks the whole time. I'd much rather just be up front and say, you know, I'm out of ideas here. This is where you help me and we're going to sort this one out together. That's right. And I remember vividly, these are things that have stuck in my mind in terms of the greatest examples of school leaders. One was down in Croydon, where the head teacher who I was kind of shadowing for the day, he was out at home time, down the street, down the bus stop, asking them all what they were reading. You know, he was he was having chats to every, told them all to tuck their shirts in. He was he was but he was so he was cracking jokes. You know, he was out there. He made those children, he wanted to reach every single one of them before they got on that bus. Mm. And it was amazing, you know. And the other one was a head teacher in the middle of an SLT session that I was at. And he said, you know, thanks for coming. So we don't know anything about this topic. You know, we're we're here to learn. (laughs) I thought this is the kind of guy I want, you know, leading a school that my children are in. Someone who doesn't, who's not afraid to say, I have no idea, but I'm happy to learn. And that is yeah. very, you know, as you say, it really sticks in your mind, doesn't it? Yeah, you can't you can't keep saying it. You've got to know something. <laughs> You've got, to, but that's the other thing about. I think you know when you are, it's the quality of your communication as well. So I, I remember one of my chairs of governors who was a great guy. He uh, used to run SC Johnson in this country. He's now moved to America. Brad Goodwin, his name is. I learned a lot from him. Very quiet guy, but ultra sharp and you know, he said to me you know there's no such thing as an off-the-cuff conversation you know if it's in a corridor with a member of staff or on the playground with a parent whatever there's no such thing as an off-the-cuff conversation every one of those conversations is an opportunity for you to just reinforce what you're about 
And he said, you really have to sound sick of your own voice. When, you're, when you feel like, do you know what, I'm bored of listening to myself saying this, he said, then you're communicating enough. Wow. You've got to, you know, and I thought, wow, that's, and it stayed with me forever. It's great advice. No one can then say, well, I don't know what Jarlath stands for. Well, you do, because he's always talking about whatever it is that's important to him. And it doesn't mean that you kind of are like a broken record, but you, you are, you never miss an opportunity to reinforce what you're about. And you talk then earlier about language. And if you're going to challenge uh, pejorative language in school, you can't do it on your own. You, you need to make sure that you do it each and every time you come across it, because if you don't, you essentially allow it. You essentially condone that in school, but then you need other people to know that they're going to do the same as well. One of my great colleagues I work with, the deputy, she, I made a few mistakes when I first became ahead in terms of challenging language. And I, I did it in a kind of confrontational way, which I regret. She came up with a much better way. So she would say, we plan for success in this school, you know, and, and what help do you need with, with, with making this a success? And I thought that was such a good way of challenging things. Someone was negative about a child. She would just come back with, you know, we plan for success in the school. And the message was a clear one, which is, we're going to take a different approach here. But then she would follow it up with, what support do you need? What help do you need from me then to make this work? Yeah, such a positive message, isn't it? Yeah, I've nicked it. It was a great idea. But every, you know, it becomes a mantra then and everybody knows, well, Jared's going to say that. And when he says it, we know what he means. But you can't do it on your own. You need other people, the other leaders in school to, to, to do that as well. That's right. One of the core messages from your work is behaviours, every, this is everyone's issue. All of these yeah. things, every yeah. single person support staff everyone is involved they should be using consistent messaging you know consistent positive language that everyone that stems from your school values and vision and if you don't then essentially you're saying you rely on a hierarchy and i don't like the idea that behavior relies on the hierarchy you know some kind of status to make a child behave better the the you know if this doesn't you know if you don't behave i'm going to go and get the head teacher thing there's a way there's a place for coming to support a colleague I get, but actually the idea that status or, or power will improve a situation, it won't. You know, we, we expect children to behave that way, whoever is in front of them, not just because the head teacher is there, which is why I like to talk to colleagues who have policies in their school about, you know, when the head walks in, kids have to stand up. Well, why do you do that? You know, oh, it's about respect just for you. Well, why is it so important that they do that for you, but not the site manager? What is it about being head teacher that means they have to stand up for you? But if the site manager comes in to fix a leaky tap, they don't. Or the, the other message that comes across that is that whatever learning you were doing at the time, that's less important than you standing up when I come in the room. So, you know, hierarchy and status are that they're, they're kind of baked into our system as well. I don't I don't like the idea that they should be levers in terms of making children behave better. And certainly, sorry to bring another parallel in from the world of prisons, but a great prison governor who has the respect of men in prison will be will will see better and positive behavior in that institution and that is the mark of a great prison governor has been someone who goes around talks to the men asks them how they're doing asks what could feel better or be better you know and has those dialogues they can go into a cell they can sit down they are confident and and making those men feel valued they were always the prison governors who saw better behavior on the whole in yeah. those institutions which just reiterates the point that it is about making people feel valued rather than being afraid you know um of of the person leading the institution if you like that's why you know go back a little bit when you're talking about often when you hear behavior advice in schools people say you know you've got to catch them being good and i always say well, you need to catch them being better it's not about 
good or naughty. You know, that's a kind of Santa Claus list. You've got to, wherever that child is, you've got to recognise when things are better. Um, you know, if you say to some someone, then, you know, we'll withhold any kind of positive affirmation until you get to this level. And that that will be, you know, that could be, as far as they're concerned, unattainable. There's no point in, in striving for that. So you have to recognise then, this is where this child is at today or yesterday. Today is better than yesterday. It may still be poor or difficult, but you have to acknowledge if it is better. And when you do that as well, you 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 can convince people, you know, adults in school to keep going with what with, with their work with that child because it's it's bearing fruit. If you withhold any kind of credit, if you like, until they they reach a level where we think things are good enough, you know, for some kids they may never feel like they're going to get there. And so they stopped trying. And there's so much, there's so much hope in that lovely message, isn't there? Children always, yeah. everyone needs a sense of progress. Um, otherwise, it's completely demoralizing, both for the person who's trying to help them move on and for the child who's trying to develop and grow. Yeah, I think I like the the idea, of kind of a parallel with music exams, for example. So there's kind of grades as you go along, and each time you progress, you get credit for being where you are and, and improving from where you were before rather than well you know you're still a poor flute player until you can get to grade eight or whatever you know my daughter's grappling at the minute with grade one and grade eight as far as she's concerned is light years away not important you know her, her thing is to is to get to a level of competence and proficiency where she gets to grade one and it's pointless then saying yeah well you're still not a grade eight so you're still rubbish you know that people very quickly give up with that kind of approach so that that recognition along the way of you're better than you were yesterday keep going you're better than you were last month keep going you're better than you were last year keep going things may still be tough but if they're less tough than they were before a the child needs to know that but also the adults around need to know that and parents too because you want to persevere with that and if things aren't getting better then you have to change tack but if you you just continue to just decide kids still on the naughty list you know, pretty much everybody runs out of, of energy and stops trying. I'm conscious of time. and I just want to ask you one last question, which is about behaviour management when schools return, you know, post-COVID. Uh, yeah. I think a lot of teachers are, are very, they're sort of, you know, have a lot of anticipatory anxiety about what might be greeting yeah. them rightly or wrongly in the autumn term. Have you got any sort of top tips, if you like, for, for schools listening about, I mean, um, I'm certainly very, I think a lot of pastoral support will be required, but what other things do you think will make a difference this autumn term as opposed to other terms? I think schools are going to be really good at this. I was talking to a teacher last week. I think she'd been a teacher for one year and was saying, you know, essentially my first year as a teacher has been cut in half. And I'm quite nervous about September because, you know, I haven't been in the classroom for quite a long time. And I said, well, all teachers in September feel that way every September. We've had six weeks potentially away from the classroom. We sometimes forget some of our routines and I call it kind of school fitness. You know, you forget sometimes how to teach, but it doesn't take you very long to get back in the in the swing of things. This will be a bit different because the, the period of time has been a lot longer. However, I think the principle is still the same. But I was saying to her that school leaders need to recognise this and they need to set up, you know, informal systems or formal systems where it's acknowledged and teachers are supported. So, for example, we could say for the first two weeks after at the end of school, we're all going to get in the staff from social distancing allowing for 10 minutes, 15 minutes at the end of the day. And we're just going to have a bit of a decompression. We might have a bit of a Q&A, but, you know, we might just all collectively get together as a group and just be around each other, have a cup of tea and a, and a chat. 
she was worried as a new teacher. And I said, you know, most teachers are going to feel this way. So schools can set that up in order to support the staff. And that will help in terms of, you know, lessening the anxiety they potentially pass on down to children. But I do foresee schools being very understanding with, with children going much heavier in terms of reinforcing the routines in school because some of them will be different and practicing them with children over and over and allowing a level of uh, flexibility that maybe their systems didn't before so that kids can get it right you know we've got to make we don't help kids get it right that's the thing um, rather than trying to catch them when they don't and I, you know, I foresee schools being considerate and and skilled and sensitive around that with children. But the other thing is uh, physical space might be a little bit more limited. So I think I read somewhere in some of your work that the capacity to send a child off into an isolation room or, you know, the space may not be available for those kind of, you know, punishments or sanctions, if you like, which means really the onus is back on the relationship that you have with these children. You're relying much more heavily on it. Yeah, and hopefully then they can focus on, what is really important. So is a child going to leave a lesson for a minor uniform infringement or is it going to be because they are absolutely struggling to contain themselves? And those two things are really different. So hopefully they will reserve some of those things like isolation, for example, for the much more serious situations. And then rather than just using isolation as that's where that child goes and essentially they think about what they did for a while, you know, what is you, what are you going to do while that child is in there? For that period of time a how long are they going to be in there for and then b what are you going to do when they're in there i mean those are questions i ask anyway about use of isolation but i think they come to the fore much more now rather than just being a repository for children who are struggling in a class what are we going to do for that period of time while we've got that child and we can potentially offer them some more support and one of the one of the lovely things about your book leading better behavior is that you provide lots of reflective points and areas where a head teacher or teachers can use you know to go and take into the staff room and think about why are we doing the things that we do in this school you know and really questioning are they working if they're not let's try something new and I think that comes across quite strongly oh thank you it's I remember one of those two parents we talked about earlier she was the person who convinced me that I was uh, silly for handing out 100% attendance awards and I did it simply because it had happened in the school before and I gave it absolutely no thought whatsoever and just carried on doing it because I thought it was a nice thing to do. And then she said to me, you know, why are you, why are you punishing my child for having Down syndrome? Yeah, that's a really good point, actually, <laughs> and one which I can't answer. The only answer to that is I'm going to stop doing this. So, yes, I think there are some things we do in schools that are out of habit. Uh, and it, we would do well to, you know, go back to first principles to say, why is it that we are actually doing this thing in school in the first place? What is the problem we are trying to solve by doing this thing? And if we can't really answer that well, or if it isn't aligned with our values as a school, then you need to rethink. Well, happily, you know, we have all your lovely books to refer to. So and I've mentioned them all in your bio. And I just said to my husband today, you know, this book is brilliant. I can't imagine being a school leader and not having this book, you know, with mine's dog-eared and I've got highlighter pen out and I'm not even a school leader. It's absolutely brilliant and it's grounded in heavy academic research, but you make it extremely accessible as a workbook, as a handbook. So, you know, it's fantastic. And uh, hopefully everybody will be dashing to buy it because it's amazing. And I know that you write regularly. I don't know how you find the time to be a columnist <laughs> again for the TES, but every, you're, you're so accessible to everyone via those networks as well. 
Oh, thanks, Cathy. I appreciate that. You know, it's uh, I've got lots to say on behaviour, and like I say, the profession we like talking about it. So, um, and, and so we should. Well, listen. Thank you for taking the time out of your second day of holiday before you're off <laughs> the tip. Um, yeah, yeah. I really, really appreciate, it and I've learned so much myself. Thank you, Jarla. Pleasure, Cathy. Thanks a lot. Take care. This Get a Grip podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life, and education www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooled Up schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site.